this episode of GDP, we're very happy to have Leah Bebahani join us today, and she's a 2020 Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation Scholar. She's a PhD student at the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University, and she completed her BA Honours and Masters at the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser before completing further coursework at the University of Vienna, the British Columbia Institute for Technology, and the Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Leah is also a sessional instructor in Labour Studies at Simon Fraser University. She previously worked at the Human Trafficking and Migrant Smuggling Section of the United Nations Office in Vienna, Austria. She's also a partner at a think tank in Washington, D.C. and served as an advisor to the British Columbia RCMP commanding officer. Her research focuses on the narrativization of the triad of forced labor, modern-day slavery, and human trafficking experiences in the Gulf states of the Middle East. Her research has explored the role of the sponsorship system in shaping the experiences of migrant workforce in the Middle East and the policies and politics that govern the interplay between immigration, criminal laws, and labor laws. In addition, she has collaborated on projects entailing the application areas of corporate responsibility and business models of forced labor in the United Kingdom. And today on GDP, we're very happy to have Leah Bebahani join us to talk about her research. Hi, Leah. Bob, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad we could get you uh, get you on this podcast because your current PhD research is not only timely but it is fascinating. You're you're looking at modern day slavery and human trafficking, particularly in the Gulf states. And you know, it's it's something where the the term slavery is mentioned in in 2020, and and many people would think, well, we've that's a that's a thing of the past. We've we've overcome this. But it seems to be that we're very far away from that place. So could you tell us what modern day slavery is and what this human trafficking is is going on in the Gulf states that we should be concerned about? Yes, absolutely. So so human trafficking, forced labor and slavery, known as the triad of unfree labor globally. Um, according to the ILO, some of the most recent statistics that we have, approximately 40.3 million people live in conditions of slavery today. The profits from forced labor are estimated at approximately 51 billion US dollars. So it's very, very lucrative. Uh, and to date, you, you know, academic research has focused on unfree labor in the Middle East, but it's still very, fairly limited when it comes to the concept to, to issues around the Middle East. So that's where my research comes in. That's fantastic. So how does this who is who is being who is being trafficked? Who is gaining from the experience of trafficking? How do these how do these networks operate so so that you you see them continue the way that they do in this day and age? Right. So so my doctoral research concentrates on the prevention of unfree labor. As a primary framework of analysis, I focus on the Gulf being one of the wealthiest geopolitical blocks globally with a combined GDP of 3.46 trillion US dollars. So massive, massive amounts, but also one with a very heavy reliance on foreign labor. With migrants constituting up to, you know, in parts of the Gulf, up to 90% of the workforce in some states, uh, with approximately, you know, numbers looking somewhere between 18 to 23 million migrants living there. And when I refer to the Gulf states, I'm referring to uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, Bahrain, Kuwait, and Oman specifically. So my argument has been that that the sponsorship system, the kafala system that's often referred to, creates opportunities for exploitation, asking, you know, questions such as, can it be reformed or should it be discontinued altogether? Kafala is a system whereby persons of non-GCC origin or non-Gulf origin can obtain a permit to essentially work with the Gulf, uh, to work in the Gulf states through a person of Gulf origin. 
So, you know, we know that while this can be used in legitimate ways, it's also uh, it also allows sponsors and recruitment firms to exploit migrant workers and go undetected. What the sponsorship system essentially does is it's not unique. In fact, we have a de facto kafala system in Canada and other places in the world through temporary foreign workers programs. But what is unique to the region is its historical, cultural and religious backdrop, which I'm interested in exploring and learning more about how shifts are required on all those fronts for any meaningful reform to take place. What we know is that the labor force is highly, highly stratified according to gender and race, and from my experience living there, also religion. So to an extent, with respect to domestic workers, I'm curious to study the intersections between these different issues in, in a number of sectors, namely construction, domestic work, hospitality, and tourism, and how these, these are impacted by the labor force in the region. Some of the things that have been born out of the kafal system that are particularly problematic are, are, for example, things like, you know, workers not being able to, uh, they have no right to collective bargaining, uh, they don't have the right to organizing in the private sector, they cannot exit uh, without permission in some states, passports are still withheld, there are no minimum uh, wage stipulations in practice in a lot of cases, uh, contract, contracts aren't always stipulated in the language that's understood by workers, so uh, they don't know often what they're signing off on. Uh, there are very vague clauses regarding maximum allowable percentages that workers can be charged for repayment of loans from the migration process. And of course, the issue of non-transferability of employment to a third party, which means that they can't move from one employer to another if they are found in to be in a situation that, that's exploitative. And when they do escape, or if they do escape, fines are often exposed and they face imprisonment. So... Yeah, so laws are improving slowly and some reforms have been made in policy, but in practice, they continue to exist and often go unmonitored, which is very problematic. And unlike some parts of the world, cases of, of forced labor and slavery um, are not even hidden in plain sight. They're simply there for you to see. Uh, hmm. What we know is that recent high profile campaigns targeting human trafficking, forced labor and modern slavery have tended to very much to concentrate on the exceptional cases. So the worst of the worst cases, but have had a lot less to say about the everyday forms of labor abuse, which are produced by this sort of smooth and regular operations of the global economy. And that's what I'm hoping to uncover in my research. That's really, that's really a, a great overview Leah, of what's, what's going on here. Uh, one of the critiques that has come up very frequently in media was the construction of the FIFA stadiums underway in Qatar. Uh, in, in Doha, and that a lot of the labor that's being brought in for this uh, this event uh, to create these these football pitches uh, are are going through the system. And the the thing is, is that these construction sites are are risky. Safety standards are getting cut here and there, and there's really no telling of just who has been injured or in some cases killed on a, on a work site or the, the governments are very unwilling to, to provide information uh, on that. Have, is this something else that, that you've looked into? Yeah. So I think part of the challenge is that the data is, is uh, very sparse. We don't know exactly, you know, not, there isn't much literature out there that tells us exactly what's happening. Certainly a lot is happening on these construction sites that you've mentioned, in addition to construction sites around the Guggenheim Abu Dhabi, the Louvre Abu Dhabi, uh, you know, the, the Expo building. And so there are a lot of uh, new research, you know, research trends that we're coming across. What I'm hoping to do in my research is really bring that to light 
looking at narrativizing the experiences of migrant workers. And also, in, the, in while I'm doing that, analyzing the nexus between forced labor legislation, criminal law, and by extension, human trafficking legislation, labor laws, immigration laws, and to see how all these laws and policies with respect to criminal immigration and labor can acknowledge and address these gaps between policy and practice. So to speak directly with the workers themselves to document what their experiences have been. And so all of these, you know, all of this is, an, is in an effort to identify the points of potential intervention during the recruitment of migrant workers. So before they even land in the Gulf, uh, while they're being recruited, often through labor intermediaries, uh, before they walk into these highly exploitative situations to see what can be done to avoid these types of situations. And so I have two things that I hope to, to achieve you know, with my research. The first is to share these narratives of migrant workers who are enduring unimaginable difficulties, but whose stories are either captured in sound bites by journalists or human rights organizations or not captured at all for a variety of reasons, partly because it's so difficult to access some of these populations that live in labor camps on the outskirts of, of, of town. So I wanna conduct these interviews um, However, I have my own challenges, you know, conducting interviews in the Gulf states can be very challenging. Labor camps are not accessible. There's a fear of deportation for speaking up. And so I'll be I'll be conducting the interviews en route to the Gulf while workers are, are you know, being recruited uh, into the Gulf states. And what I'm hoping to do through this research is really provide a more comprehensive narrative around the lives of migrant workers and more specifically on the journeys that they endure to travel to the Gulf for work. I'm interested in sharing their stories about what drives them to migrate to the Gulf, despite knowing, often knowing, the exploitation that, that may await them, what sustains them during these encounters, and what ultimately contributes to their decision to leave, uh, even if that's a choice. You know, it's sometimes it's not even a choice. I'm also interested in their expressions, uh, you know, in the form of artwork, but that's something that I'm sort of in the early stages of exploring. And then the second thing that I'm hoping to, to achieve with my research is to seek alternative options to the kafala system. You know, I used to believe in reforming the kafala system, but as I've learned more, I've slowly started to move towards uh, the idea that the kafala system is inherently flawed, too flawed to be reformed. And so mm -hmm. what I'm trying to propose during, you know, during my interviews and during my own research is, is to propose this idea that the Gulf states need a more sustainable model of labor recruitment that doesn't inherently create vulnerable situations for migrant workers. And in my opinion, the kafala system is just not it anymore. I think that if you ask me, you know, if, if I could blue sky it or reimagine a new model, I would say we need a new labor model that isn't dependent on systematically exploiting people, but rather upholding the economy, which is a priority for the Gulf states, doesn't compromise that while protecting the human rights of migrant workers who are traveling to the Gulf in really in search of a better life for the possibility of, of sending money home to support their families, to provide access to health care and education for their families, to live a life of dignity that, that virtually you know, all human beings deserve. So ultimately, my hope is to go beyond acknowledging that the kafal system is flawed and take a much deeper look at what are the possibilities of creating sustainable models of labor recruitment across the sectors that I've mentioned. Well, I think those are great points, Leah, and maybe we can just take a minute and, and unpack a bit of that. So the, the, the things that I'm hearing coming from your work is, is it's not just uh, about a, a critique of the system itself, but that you're very interested in looking at both the pull factors what's drawing people to the Gulf states for this type of work, and maybe the push factors as well. What, what's going on in uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, that's pushing people out to seek these opportunities? So in that sense, uh, what 
what, what, what can we understand about this? Because, you know, for anyone who's been to just say Dubai, uh, you know, you've got these, these constructions and luxury right from the airline to the shopping malls to the Burj Khalifa to, to, you know, you name it. There's, there's no shortage of fanciness in Dubai. And yet, if you walk down the, the the right parts of town by the by the river, you know you 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 start to see where the workers' locations are, and there's just such an extremity of wealth and resources and luxury to that of very cramped and and perhaps dangerous accommodation. And I and I just wonder what is it about that particular model uh, to have this just over the top luxury, and yet be part and parcel of what amounts to essentially indentured service. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, I think there has been a heavy reliance on foreign labor for so long that that alternatives to this economic model, to this labor model, is it's really not even in consideration anymore. There are lots of conversations happening about the reform of such practices because it's it's really come to light. People are starting to notice as they as they, you know, visit the Gulf states or as they live there. Um, but but there isn't as much of a discussion around completely undoing this kafala system. The irony, of course, is that the kafala system was born out of the idea that a sponsor, historically, a sponsor by the name of a kafil would be responsible to take care of someone under their guardianship or would be responsible to make sure that they're clothed, that they're fed, that they're taken care of. And so what it's morphed into is, is the complete opposite, where you see a huge disparity in wealth, a complete lack of regard for the well-being and the lives of migrant workers who are, uh, who typically come from the global south, um, and and who spend their lives trying to sustain their families, who don't see their families very often, but who spend their lives sustaining their families uh, back home. And so, absolutely, the disparity in wealth and disparity in lifestyle is something that that is unavoidable. That that anybody who visits, I think, who is who has an eye for it, can can certainly pick up and notice. Um, you know, whether it's from the moment that you land in the airport, the people that are loading your luggage and to the people who are working in the hotels who are serving you, uh, to the individuals who, you know, who you meet on virtually on a daily basis in your in your experience in the Gulf states. And so my research is really, you know, trying to unpack that and trying to disrupt our understanding of what human trafficking means, what what, you know, slavery means and what forced labor means in the context of the Gulf. Because in other parts of the world, it may be hidden, but really in the context of the Gulf, it's it's in your everyday interactions, and it's it's unavoidable for unnoticed. I think that's a that's a that's both a challenge and an opportunity at the same time. That unavoidability, and the reason is is that you've got this this apparentness. You're right. Like you're you're you are well. Neither of us are in this moment, but in theory, we could be in the the first class pods of the. Emirates A380, and we're landing in in Dubai, or maybe we're we're in a Qatar Airways uh, craft coming into Doha, and yes, the minute the plane's on the ground, you you see just the the rash disparity of lifestyle, access to resources, everything, and that invites not only the critique but the opportunity for research. But there's something else that I think you picked up on here is that system of relying on effectively stateless workers, uh, those who do not have access to the social contract in which they're working, is something that's increasingly popular with many 
nations around the world. Canada has a migrant labor program. Uh, so does Australia. So does New Zealand. And we're actually seeing greater expansion of those programs with related to climate change issues. So even though you've got this extreme case in the Gulf, it doesn't leave the other parts of the world uh, uninterrupted from participating in these processes, even though it may be done through different means, if you know what I mean. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, there, there are a number of projects underway that are looking at the different corridors that rely on very similar processes, different sponsorship systems. And, and what came to me as a surprise is, is the similarity between these different corridors. So, you know, the Mexico, Mexico, Canada, U.S. corridor is one. There, there are a number of other corridors between Europe and, and the global south, between um, different parts of, of, you know, Asia and the global south and Australia. So it's not something that's really unique to this region. It's, it's effectively happening, happening all around us with sponsorship mm-hmm. systems. But I, I think the complexity in the in the case of the Gulf comes with its cultural and its historical and its religious backdrop, which I think for me creates creates an even bigger challenge. How do you unpack all those intersections and determine at what point to intervene and say, okay, this is a preventative measure that might work against the, the deep sort of historical roots in this practice? And so you're absolutely right. These are not new practices. These are not practices that are unique to this region, but they're certainly... Um, uh, rendered even more complex by virtue of these elements. Right. I wanted to ask you about how people are involved in willingly involved, or maybe they're not willingly involved in a trafficking uh, corridor. So I'm thinking back to Bangladesh in the 1990s when there was your Jeffrey Sachs uh, economics. There were others who were who were saying that the wave to uh, overcome poverty would be through uh, the creation of essentially sweatshops in, in Bangladesh. R- move women from rural Bangladesh into the urban areas, get them working long hours, and then with the money they're making, that then could go towards the benefits of the future generation. And that last line was ex- was essentially the very small piece of twine that satisfied the human rights argument for the day, that, that yes, the conditions are horrid, and yes, it's hard work, and yes, all of these things, but there may be an opportunity for the next generation to do a bit better. Uh, we know in hindsight now that the, the, the role of uh, factory uh, sweatshops in Bangladesh is very complicated and in, in all sorts of directions. But what is it that you've seen that people say, okay, I'm going to in, engage in this experience of working in a trafficked means in the Gulf states? What, what sort of is, is justified for people to engage in this? You know, Bob, that's a question I've been asking myself because I think that's that's one of the that's one of the most important questions about how do people end up in the Gulf knowing, often knowing the exploitative situations that they're walking into. And I think that's where my research is really important in in the sense that I'm really trying to understand what are the push factors? How are you know, what is the context in which these individuals make a decision uh, to leave their home countries and migrate? And when you look at some of the push factors, you know, access access to education, access to healthcare, access to water and sanitary living conditions, these are all um, elements that they, they are taking into consideration for themselves and their families in their home countries and, and lack of access to, to these to these things, which I think are basic human rights, you know, living mm-hmm. standards. 
And so when when you deprive uh, uh, you know parts of certain states of these of access to these things, you leave them with no choice but to migrate to a situation um, into a situation that may or may not provide them with these amenities. And right. People often think of the Gulf as as you know the final you know a, a chance to finally help their families, a chance to send some money back, a chance for a better hope, a better future, a better living condition for their families. Um, knowing the stories that are coming out of that region. So for someone to make that that conscious decision, that intentional decision to take such a big risk tells me that the conditions from, that, from which they come from are, are, are potentially much, much worse than what they're living in. Uh, and that for me raises questions around what do we need to do to prevent uh, them making that decision to migrate in the first place? How do we better their situation and where they're at in right. order for them not to be left with that, with that, uh, with that choice? And, and just to check in on the geography of where most migrants, trafficked migrants coming into the Gulf are coming from, is it is it South Asia? Is it the Stands? Is it other parts of the Middle East? Yeah, so that's one thing I'm trying to explore is what are the, the countries that have the highest numbers of migrants that are traveling to the Gulf? And certainly the experiences differ depending on, on the countries that they come from. Um, as I mentioned, the, the workforce is highly stratified. So you'll have, for example, individuals coming from Lebanon or Egypt that end up in uh, hospitality that, that work in hotels in slightly higher end jobs. People that work, you know, that come from the global south, from Bangladesh, from uh, from Sri Lanka, from India, from Pakistan, end up working in, in a particular sector, normally uh, construction work and uh, sometimes domestic work. You have individuals from different parts of Africa that end up working in domestic work as well. Um, uh, you know, I've seen individuals from the Philippines and other parts of, of East Asia that work uh, typically in, in uh, the malls or typically work, again, as domestic workers. So it is very, very highly stratified, and their experiences depend on where they're coming from uh, and the kind of cultural and religious sort of experiences that they bring with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, the domestic worker uh, group is, is very interesting because there was actually a... Uh, relationship that uh, broke down between uh, that of uh, the Philippines and Saudi Arabia for for quite a bit of time. That the uh, th- there's often about uh, seventeen thousand plus women who train as nurses in the Philippines every year, and depending on how their experience goes, many of them will will turn to leaving the Philippines before they finish their degrees in the hopes of taking on domestic service jobs as opposed to LPN or, or RN duties. You know, it's 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 easier to, to do it that way. But the stories of domestic abuse that were, were coming back to the Philippines uh, actually moved the government there to, to, to cease the relationship with Saudi Arabia for that for that particular program as a, as a result of it. And I also am thinking the, the many uh, workers who would come into the construction, the construction sector from uh, India or Southeast Asia, uh, debt would also be a very, uh, very big factor there that the, just the, the, the many rural workers who are themselves deeply indebted, uh, as, as a result of, uh, various agricultural schemes that have, that have not, gone the way they thought they would. And, you know, this is going to be very interesting to see how you, how you collage this. And I like what you said that it comes into sort of the same experience. And one of the, the factors that is a benefit that we, we can know about and we can record about is that of remittance, uh, to send money back to, to help out the family. I mean, that's the, a huge part of the Filipino, uh, economy. It's, it's something that, um, 
you know, the, the government proudly says this is the, our way towards development. But uh, with the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, the remittances around the world have just dried up. So a few reports have, have come out to suggest that COVID-19 pandemic has, has had an impact on human trafficking, and in particular how uh, even smugglers are now using misinformation to convince people to use their services, often at a higher price. And yet, when it comes down to it, that ability to enter a country, get set up for work, and send money back just hasn't been happening the way in 2020 as it were in previous years. Would you say? Yes, absolutely. So so you're absolutely right. COVID-19 has had a huge impact on this region as it has on the rest of the world. With COVID-19 now impacting, you know, migrant worker communities in the Gulf, they're finding themselves increasingly vulnerable and exposed to significant health risks. That's one of the main points of, of contention for us right now. The labor systems operating in these countries alongside, you know, alongside dire living conditions, there's legal protection, lack of information, and restricted access to preventative health care measures and treatments all of these things make it really, really difficult for migrant workers to protect themselves during such a pandemic for, for the existing populations that are living there. This pandemic has further exposed a lot of you know, uh, extremely vulnerable positions with many cases of COVID-19 being reported amongst migrant worker communities who live in very tight quarters. You know, we know that while some governments have made promising commitments to support migrant workers, much more needs to be done, of course, to ensure that, that the spread will not result in further human rights violations and even greater suffering for migrant workers in these countries. You know, we know that some of some of these countries are the richest countries in the world, as we've talked about, but sadly, they've also become notorious for the system of systematic abuse and exploitation of migrant workers who contribute so much to their economies through these remittances that, that we've mentioned. You know, unpaid wages, forced labor, dangerous working conditions, uh, unsanitary accommodation facilities, these are all too often part and parcel of the migration experience through, again, the kafal system that we've talked about. And what's happening with COVID-19 is that all of these things are now coming to the fore. People are starting to really, really talk about it because there is no other way to, to escape it. People are, people are having to acknowledge uh, these ugly truths about what's happening. Uh, the spread of COVID-19 has, has put migrant workers at even greater risk, uh, you know, along with a number of organizations, for example, Amnesty International, they've raised concerns about the impact of the pandemic on the protection of migrant workers in the Gulf, where common issues like overcrowded accommodations now present a public health risk, and now it's becoming a greater concern for, for these states, only because it's becoming a, a greater public health risk, unfortunately. Um, but, but on the flip side, this crisis could also be an opportunity for change, as we've noticed in other parts of the world as well. You know, throughout the Gulf, COVID-19 is, is finally now shining a spotlight on, on sanitary overcrowded conditions that many of the migrant workers live in and their precarious legal status. Suddenly, the consequences of you know, denying people basic rights are impossible to ignore. Uh, by taking the right actions to protect migrant workers now, governments and businesses actually could start to turn the tide on years of abuse if they if they so choose. Um, some of these Gulf countries have to start treating you have to start treating migrant workers equally and eliminate all these systems of discrimination against them that infringe on their human rights. Uh, some of the things that have been proposed, you know, towards this are things that governments employers need to do so that every migrant worker in the Gulf has the right to health care, adequate housing, social security, and just working conditions. Um, as I mentioned, the majority of migrant workers are low-paid laborers that are often accommodated in dormitory-style labor camps, 
which during my time when I lived there, they were actually in the middle of town, but now now they're on the outskirts of town. So people don't even know what's happening because there there are very sort of uh, tightly encamped communities with you know very high security around them. Right. You know what we know is that generally speaking, they're provided very small rooms as accommodation, which are typically shared between six and twelve people who sleep in bunk beds. So social distancing is not even a possibility. The lack of electricity and running water have continuously been a problem. Um, and you know, following hygiene guidelines under these these uh, conditions are are nearly impossible. And, and the result is that the fear of contagion has upset relations between many domestic workers, not just in labor camps, but domestic workers that are living with with uh, their employers. And you know, some used to get breaks, but now they're having to to serve these families round the clock, which is really kind of breaking down their ability to to continue living there and working there. And it's the families often have a great amount of distrust in the workers as potential vectors to the virus. Um, we've also seen some uh, data coming out of recruitment agencies that are reportedly locking up domestic workers to the point that women are actually being chained to walls. Pregnant mm. workers are not being allowed to visit their medical care provider. And even when they're able to, to you know, establish a case that they, they need to go back home, they're expected to prove that they don't have COVID-19 and they're expected to purchase a ticket, you know, that that's in the ballpark of five hundred, you know, twenty-five dollars, which is nearly impossible for the amount that they're earning. Right. So, Leah, I mean, we're we're pretty much going to have to leave it here. But I mean, one of the things that you you just so nicely put out uh, in in your last uh, comments about just how quickly something like the pandemic can can impact vulnerable uh, populations in in so easily. In so many ways, to which uh, you know other communities, other groups of different economic or social status just don't feel the impacts in the same way. One of the things that we are, we're hearing uh, in many fields about the pandemic is that it's an opportunity for change. It's an opportunity to revisit business as usual in many different sectors. And I'm just wondering, real quick, are there any? models out there uh, that either the ILO has found or promoted or that countries themselves are engaging in where the rights of temporary workers or foreign workers are protected and guaranteed? And, you know, is there any any room for discussion during the, a time of a pandemic to explore how those models could actually be applied by other countries, including those in the Gulf? That's a good question. You know, I don't know of any models off the top of my head that I think are working uh, the way that they should be. However, I, you know, to credit, you know, to credit the Canadian government, the, the current government, I think that there is at least at minimum an attention being paid to the fact that we are now having to to look at our labor conditions and pay particular attention to the sponsorship schemes that bring in migrant workers. So if I were to say that that one model that's working at least better than what's happening in the Gulf is the Canadian model, and I'm hoping to to learn a bit more about that and what that means about lessons learned about, and, and how do we model some of our, our issues in the Gulf against what's happening in Canada uh, with the acknowledgement that we still have a long way to go here, but that we do have some wins that, that certainly can be taken uh, to heart in the, in the case of the Gulf. Right. Leah, thank you so much for joining us on GDP. I hope that we can we can have you back uh, as your research progresses and maybe you can you can share some details of, of you say, this very complicated collage that uh, of, of migration and trafficking that's impacting the Middle East. It's always such a pleasure to talk to a Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation scholar on GDP. Thank you so much, Bob. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thank you, Leah.